History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. In his final days, Alexander the Great's generals asked him who should succeed him. Alexander's answer, the strongest. Taken literally, this would see the close of the classical Greek age, an age thousands of years in the making. Join me, Mark Selleck, as I go back to retell the story of ancient Greece in my series Casting Through Ancient Greece. We will cast our way back to its beginnings, all the way through to the spread of its culture throughout the known world, thanks to Alexander and his generals. You can listen and subscribe to the series at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com or you can listen on your favourite podcasting platform. Don't forget to follow the series over on Twitter at Casting Greece or on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece. I look forward to seeing you there. You are listening to the History of Persia podcast. And as we've been hearing from Trevor, the history of the Persian Empire is a story of Persian domination of much of the Middle East and Central Asia. But this was not the first time these lands were conquered, and it would certainly not be the last. I don't want to give too much away, but in the year 329 BCE, the important Persian city of Samarkand in modern-day Uzbekistan was conquered by some guy by the name of Alexander. But what's interesting about this city is that about 1700 years later, this same city, Samarkand, would be the glowing capital of an empire forged by a man known as Timur, or Tamerlane, or simply Timur. And Timur has gone down in history as a fantastic tactician, a man who supposedly never lost a battle, a great patron of the arts, and one of the most brutal conquerors of all time. From about 1365 until 1405 CE, Timur was almost constantly at war, building for himself an empire that stretched from modern-day Turkey to India, from Syria to the Russian steppe, and I want to know how and why this happened. If that sounds interesting to you and you want the story of Timur told by a guy who talks too fast and has loud neighbors, then check out my show, The Timur Podcast. Find out more about it at timurpodcast.com or listen to it in most places where you find podcasts. And with that said, take it away, Trevor. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 104, The Darius Restoration. Last time, we talked about eunuchs, their role in the Achaemenid government, how and why they were castrated to be in those positions, and their role as a possible third gender in Persian society. I also discussed some other gender non-conforming groups in the Achaemenid world, including priesthoods and the idea of sexual identity in the Achaemenid period. Before that, we had just done a narrative episode on the domestic policies of Artaxerxes III, his assassination by the eunuch advisor Bagoas the Elder, and the mass murder of all but one of Artaxerxes III's heirs. The lone survivor was Arces, the youngest Achaemenid prince in 338 BCE, who became King Artaxerxes IV, for the sole purpose of acting as Bagoas' puppet. A royal assassination, a boy king as no more than a figurehead, 
advisors looking out for nobody but themselves, rising tensions with the Sokka in the Northeast, and exhaustion after dealing with decades of open warfare in the West. The Achaemenid Empire was bleeding out, and the vultures had started to circle. There was functionally no policy change, or even really political action, under Artaxerxes IV. Officially, everything was just as it had been under his father, but without the vengeful warrior king calling the shots. Practically, Bagoas and the nobles on his side were out to enrich and empower themselves, imperial stability be damned. And the foreign powers knew this. So recently reconquered, Egypt went into revolt under a pharaoh called Kabash. Babylonia tried to shake off a Caymanid dominion for the first time in 150 years with a noble from Uruk named Nedintu Bel declaring himself king, and rebellion springing up in Babylon and Sippar. Preparations for increasingly hostile Sokka raids continued in the steppe satrapies. Though speculative, there is some evidence to suggest that the outlying and oft-forgotten provinces of the Indus Valley and Maka in Oman quietly began slipping away. And while Artaxerxes III had been focused on Egypt, the winds of bloody change swept through southeastern Europe. King Philip II of Macedon subjugated all who stood before him. By 336 BC, almost all of coastal Thrace as far as Byzantium had fallen. The tribes and petty kings of northeastern Greece and Illyria had bent their knees, and all of Greece, save for the humbled backwater of Sparta, were pressed into the League of Corinth. Then, Philip turned his gaze toward Asia and sent his general Parmenion to invade Anatolia. From east to west, north to south, the Persian Empire is in disarray, and there was little that could be done to save them. Up in Bactria, a certain Bessus had recently been promoted to satrap, and along with the eastern Karanos Histaspes, they did what they could to maintain order. We know next to nothing about the Indian provinces of Hindush and Satagadia, or Maka, but it seems they were led by local vassal kings who began to doubt a Caymanid power. It had been so long since serious rebellion broke out in Babylon that the Persians couldn't have been ready for it, especially within the capital itself. Egypt and the Macedonian invasion both rose from the same circumstances. Egypt was too recently reconquered to truly be secure, and there was nobody in the Western Empire capable of responding in force against either Kabash or Parmenion. Phoenicia and Cyprus had just been crushed in revolts of their own by Artaxerxes III. The satraps of Anatolia were barred from maintaining their own standing armies after the Great Satraps' Revolt, and the entire Western Empire had been fighting on multiple fronts continuously since Cyrus the Younger's rebellion 60 years earlier. 
Royal intervention was needed to quell rebellions, raise a full army from the Iranian provinces, authorize mercenary funds, and settle this imperial-scale problem before the empire came apart. It is impossible not to see a parallel to the Behistun inscription, and perhaps the young Artaxerxes IV was looking to history for inspiration. But not from Darius the Great, at least not immediately. Instead, his plan looked very similar to his own namesake, Artaxerxes I. That king, over a century before, had also been young and a puppet to advisors who murdered his father and brother. So like Artaxerxes I, the new Artaxerxes began making overtures to friendly nobles and trying to form a plan to eliminate Bagoas the Elder, seize the throne in earnest, and take action. Unfortunately for Artaxerxes IV, Bagoas was far more entrenched than Artabanus of Hyrcania had been. The eunuch caught wind of the plot and made the first move. It was easy enough, the king was functionally a captive, and all it took was a little poison and a compliant cupbearer to serve it up. Cough, choke, gag, thump. In mid-336 BCE, Artaxerxes IV died, somewhere between the age of 17 and 25. If only in name, he had been the great king, king of Persia, king of lands, king of this earth far and wide, pharaoh of Egypt, and king of kings, Khashayathia, Khashayathiyanam, for just two years. That left both Bagoas the Elder and the Persian Empire as a whole in a tricky situation. Seeing as Bagoas had already murdered all of Artaxerxes III's other children in 338, and Artaxerxes III had murdered all of his own brothers and nephews 20 years before that, there was a distinct lack of princes of Persia. On one hand, everyone had known since Darius the Great's time that trying to install a new dynasty would mean imperial destruction and all-out civil war. The political situation was extremely delicate. On the other hand, that meant succession through the paternal line now had to trace various nobles' ancestry all the way back to Darius II in order to find a suitable candidate. For the first time, the Achaemenid refusal to commit to a strict primogeniture became an asset rather than a cause for conflict. Instead of tracing everything back to figure out the eldest living descendant of Austenes, Darius II's and Parasatus' third son, Bagoas just got to pick from all of the viable heirs. It is possible that he did pick the man believed to be the eldest male descendant of Austenes, but equally possible and much more likely that he simply picked the candidate he thought he could most easily manipulate and win the most allies with. A letter was dispatched to Van, the capital of Armenia, and Satrap Artashiata was summoned to the royal court. 
potentially still unaware that Artaxerxes IV was dead if Bagoas was playing his cards close to his chest. You may remember Artaxiata. We encountered him briefly in episode 97 when he served under Artaxerxes III during a Caducian revolt and bested a rebel warrior in single combat. As a reward, he was named Satrap of Armenia, and had quietly served the empire in eastern Anatolia ever since. He was also an Achaemenid, albeit a distant one. He was the son of Arsimes, son of Ostenes, son of Darius II. His mother, Sisugambis, was a daughter of Artaxerxes II. We know very little of this Arsimes, who is only mentioned in this context, but it is likely that he held some position in the Eastern Empire, since the Greeks knew Artaxiata as Kodamanos, interpreted as a given name in Greek, but likely a transliteration of the Aramaic epithet Kadamawan, meaning the Easterner. So, Artashiata the Easterner was named heir to the throne, and preparations were made for his accession. It's possible that the early stages of a tomb taking shape just south of Persepolis were begun as a final resting place for Artaxerxes IV. But it seems that the boy king was probably entombed alongside his father, while construction on the southern tomb continued to provide the new monarch with a final resting place. Artashiata entered the sanctuary of Anahita at Pasargadai, and the new king came out on the other side. Of course, Artashiata is no name for an Achaemenid king, and as a ruler with a rather dubious claim to legitimacy, whose most direct royal ancestor was Darius II, and whose empire was on the verge of a Behistun-esque crisis, there was only one logical choice. He was now King Darius III. And perhaps that should have been a sign to Bagoas. He chose... poorly... In retrospect, that choice of throne name signaled Darius's intentions loud and clear. Neither previous Darius had taken unruly nobles lightly, and Darius III was no child. Instead, he was a respectable satrap and a war hero in his mid-forties at least it was soon apparent that the new monarch had no intention of being made a puppet. Bagoas did realize the heir, and began plotting another regicide. But in this case, the third time was not the charm. Darius moved first, arresting and executing Bagoas the Elder shortly after his coronation. That was just step one he still had an empire to deal with. We don't get much reference to any activities in the east, but it at least stabilized enough that he could afford to have Indian soldiers alongside both Bessus and Keranos Histaspes present on a western battlefield just a few years later. Babylon, too, yielded quickly once a true authority took the reins. 
given its proximity to both Darius's former base in Armenia and the Persian heartland, it is likely, but undocumented, that Darius dealt with Nidintu Bel in person. While we have evidence of unrest in Babylon and Sippar, no documents there actually acknowledge Nidintu Bel as king. The Babylonian rebel is only known by name thanks to a single copy of a king list from Uruk, in far southern Mesopotamia. This probably indicates that the rebel was acknowledged as king there for a brief time, and probably some other extremely ancient cities in the same area. Taking Uruk in particular may have played an important role in this rebellion, either as its starting point or as a way to disrupt Persian military organization in Babylonia as a whole. We know from several Babylonian contracts that Uruk was the traditional marshalling point for local military forces under the Achaemenids. If the outbreak of hostilities in Egypt and Anatolia had initially led Bagoas and Artaxerxes IV to call for Babylonian troops, well, they would have gathered at Uruk. If those troops were disillusioned with the boy king's reign, it would have been the ideal place for Nadintu Bel to make an appeal in favor of mutiny. Even if Uruk wasn't in use as an Achaemenid base at the start of the revolt, taking it out of Achaemenid hands would have removed an important strategic position. Whatever happened at Uruk, though, it was not enough. Nadintu Bel failed to spread his influence further north, and once Darius III arrived, the revolt was dealt with swiftly. We know nothing about the conflict, but it is likely that a satrap named Mazaius played a key role. Mazaius had been satrap of Cilicia under Artaxerxes III, and likely took part in the reconquest of Egypt. Sometime between then and 333 BCE, he was promoted out of the small coastal territory to become satrap of Babylon. That may have been a promotion from Artaxerxes III near the end of his life as a reward for action in Egypt, but it is equally possible that the promotion came from Darius for his aid in the war against Nadintu Bel, or even in the brief reign of Artaxerxes IV, given that some of Mazaios's Cilician coinage featured an image of a young man believed to be Arces dressed as Pharaoh indicating some sort of relationship between the two. It would be a bit strange for the satrap of Cilicia to march on Babylon while the Macedonians were still in the north, but these are strange times. Regardless, Mazaios was now satrap of Babylon. It is less clear whether or not Darius personally went to face the Egyptian rebels. On one hand, re-retaking Egypt would have been good for his legitimacy. On the other, Egyptian campaigns had proven dangerous in the past, and Darius's only son was just two years old. It would have been a risky move. Either with or without the great king present, a Persian commander named Sabakis seems to have been important for dealing with Pharaoh Kabash. Sabakis was aided in this inadvertently 
by King Nastasin of Kush down in Nubia. At some point in his brief reign, Kabash launched a campaign against Egypt's southern neighbor and was defeated. Egypt, too, was still recovering from the war with Artaxerxes III, and a major defeat in the south would only have weakened Kabash's defenses. Once again, we know sadly little about the actual campaign here, but within a year or two, Kabash was apparently dead and his eldest son fled into the western oases and marshes, holding out for continued rebellion, but soundly defeated and on the run. Sabakis was installed as the new satrap, and the Nile Valley was once again under Persian control, with a sizable occupation force. That leaves Anatolia, where we know Darius did not go in person, but he did authorize the recruitment of Greek mercenaries. There was no shortage of applicants, as most of Greece now resented Philip for his subjugation of their homelands. However, the 10,000-strong Macedonian force was also the exact same enemy that had just spent a decade beating those same Greek armies into a pulp. Even with reinforcements, this should have been a tough fight. And yet, it wasn't. In October of 336, shortly after Bogoas the Elder assassinated Artaxerxes IV, Posanius of Orestes assassinated Philip II. Like Bogoas, Pausanias was a member of the royal entourage, in this case one of Philip's bodyguards. Unlike Bogoas, Pausanias handled things up close and personal, stabbing the Macedonian king to death at his daughter Cleopatra's wedding. Unlike Artaxerxes IV, Philip did, in fact, have an heir, albeit a young one, not even an adult by Persian standards. The death of their greatest leader ever, and the relatively untested nature of the newfound 20-year-old king, Alexander III, did not inspire confidence in Parmenion, nor the other Macedonian troops in Anatolia. Rather, the opposite. They were demoralized and feared not just that they would lose the Asiatic campaign, but many of the gains Philip had made for their country. The local recruits and Greek mercenaries sent to oust Parmenion from Persian territory were placed under the command of the empire's prime Anatolian unrest specialists, the extended family of Mentor of Rhodes. Mentor himself had actually died not long after returning from Egypt. It's likely that he fell in battle against Parmenion, but equally possible that it was simply an illness. Or even that Bagoas exacted revenge for their humiliating partnership during the reconquest of Egypt. Now, Memnon, Mentor's brother and former rebel against Persia in exile at the Macedonian court, had succeeded his brother as a local governor and Persian fixer in Anatolia, marrying Mentor's widow, the Persian noblewoman Barsine. Barsine, who had once been considered for betrothal to the new Macedonian king Alexander. Memnon 
took command of the assembled forces and engaged the Macedonians outside of Magnesia on the Meander River. It was a swift and decisive Persian victory that sent the Macedonians fleeing for their ships, abandoning the Asian campaign, and allowing Memnon and the local satraps to march through the Greek coastal cities, resubjugating as many of them as had rebelled. And with that, Darius III had peace at last. People and resources were still coming from the Indus, the northeastern frontier was secure enough, Egypt and Babylon were back in Persian hands, and the Macedonians had proven to be just one more misguided Greek invasion and Ionian revolt in a sequence of over 200 years of foolish Greeks and Ionian rebels thinking they could stand against the King of Kings. Back in Europe, the new Macedonian monarch had his hands full with Greek insurrections and inland Thracian raiders. All was right in the world. With matters of war settled, Darius III turned to matters of state over the course of 336 and 335 BCE. The usual smattering of building projects continued, repairs were started in Babylon and Sippar, he likely put some finishing touches on the military road at Persepolis and continued work on the new procession route's copy of the Gate of All Nations, as well as the new royal tomb south of the city. The tomb is actually pretty interesting in context, if only for its weird placement. It is located well outside the normal bounds of the Persepolis complex. Rather than carved into the hillside overlooking the palaces, like Artaxerxes II and III's tombs, it was just outside of Persepolis South, the collection of palaces next to the main terrace, which I discussed in episode 76. It totally ignores the utility of the newly constructed military road and accompanying structures commissioned by Artaxerxes III. The southern tomb is also carved into rough, layered, craggy stone while trying to maintain the traditional design and cruciform shape seen at Nakshirostam. It's just poor material to work with. This has led some scholars to suggest that it was abandoned because of the medium rather than any specific events but that would seem odd as most of the typical reliefs are at least partially complete. Those would be some of the finishing touches on an otherwise completed tomb. No reason to stop at that point. Why exactly one of the late Achaemenid kings would place their tomb here is unclear, but Darius III remains the best candidate for its intended occupant. The reign of Darius III also saw some shifts in the empire's political map, which I will get into right after some ad. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing me with samples. Allergies. There are few things that make me feel worse more frequently. There are a few times a year when the trees bloom, pollen turns everything yellow, and my sinuses just seem to stop working. 
I feel miserable. I can't sleep without tossing and turning every few minutes. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been taking Claritin D for my worst allergy symptoms for probably 18 years, and it's an absolute game changer. I can fall asleep and still feel like I am able to breathe. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter, ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter, you don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Recent events had also triggered some degree of satrap shuffling and new appointments by Darius. We've already discussed Sabakis in Egypt and Mazaios in Babylon, but Darius's coronation and Mazaios's promotion left the strategically important satrapies of Cilicia and Armenia in need of new rulers. And an invasion always leads to some new men getting thrones in Anatolia. This is the second time in just 20 years that we've seen this play out. Artaxerxes III drastically reworked the political map of his northwestern territories after the Great Revolt, and though Darius didn't go quite that far, there's still movement worth discussing. For anybody who needs a reminder, following the strife of the Great Satraps Revolt, several provinces in Anatolia were carved up into smaller units. Cilicia was restored as its own satrapy, northern Cappadocia became the province of Bithynia, a swath of central Anatolia became Greater Phrygia, and over the course of Artaxerxes' reign, new leaders were appointed in Hellespontine Phrygia, Lydia, and Caria. When Mazaios was moved out of Cilicia, the coastal province passed to another Arsimes who we know very little about, but may or may not have been the son of Mazaios. By now, old Atophrodates in Lydia had died and been replaced by a guy named Spithridates. But otherwise, most of Artaxerxes III's appointments still stand. We've also been following a sort of side story in Caria for a while, as the Hecatomnid dynasty of vassal kings slash satraps expanded their own holdings and passed power along a series of sibling marriages until the youngest of Hecatomnus's sons, Pixodorus, staged a coup against his sister Ada, forcing her to retreat to the fortress of Elinda in 340. Well, Pixodorus was still besieging Elinda at this point five years later, and actually died without ever ousting his sister. He was succeeded as king and satrap of Caria by his son, Orontobades, in early 334. 
Orontobodies continued the assault against his aunt, but it's worth pointing out the difference in naming convention. Orontobodies is a characteristically Iranian name rather than the Greco-Carian style of his family. This is because Orontobodies' mother was a Persian noblewoman, and the influence of Persian culture on this branch of the family likely lent imperial support, or at least willful blindness, compared to the aging and childless Queen Ada. Hellespontine Phrygia provides the most complicated situation at this time, because when Artabazus II fled into exile in Macedon following his rebellion, Artaxerxes III replaced the long-standing Pharnacid dynasty of satraps with a newcomer called Arsites. Well, Arsites is still here, but right at the end of Artaxerxes III's reign, the surviving Pharnacids were allowed to return under Mentor of Rhodes' patronage. Pharnabazus III, son of Artabazus II, and Arsites are both identified as Hellespontine Phrygia's satrap in the classical sources. It is highly unclear what this means for the satrapy itself. In later military operations, Pharnabazus acted as an admiral and liaison to the Greeks, while Arsites commanded the Paphlagonian cavalry. This may be a sign that their already tiny satrapy was divided even further, but more likely just an example of the Greeks getting something wrong. Pharnabazus III was the hereditary heir to the satrapy under the old system, but now he seems to have been tied directly to his Rhodian family in their role as general naval commanders on the western seaboard. Pharnabazus likely worked in tandem with Arsites as a sort of all-purpose satrap of the seas, rather than an official governor. Over in Armenia, Darius III himself was actually succeeded by Orontes II, the latest scion of the Hidarnid noble family to rise to that position, apparently restored after decades of absence following his grandfather, Orontes I's, failings under Artaxerxes II. Are the names and numbers getting confusing yet because I'm having trouble following them too? Orontes I had helped bring an end to the Great Revolt, bringing his family back into the Achaemenid good books, but only now were the Hidarnids allowed to return to Armenia. Down in Syria, things were also pretty chaotic. Though most of this was probably dealt with by Artaxerxes III or IV, we just haven't talked about it much. The Phoenician Revolt in 343 led to several changes. Surprisingly, even though the rebel king of Sidon was executed, his family was allowed to remain in power, with the new king Abdashtart II succeeding under Persian oversight. However, even though it is less discussed in our sources, the rebel leaders in Tyr were ousted by the Persians, allowing a man named Azamilkos to become king of the island city-state as a Persian loyalist. That same rebellion had resulted in the death of Satrap Belesis II of Assyria, meaning he too had to be replaced. 
Surprisingly, despite all the action that we're about to see in the Assyrian satrapy, we do not know the name of his replacement. Given that they were loyalists and the satrapy had already passed from father to son several times, we can probably assume that it was one of Belesis's sons. Naturally, there were other appointments and shuffling in the east during this time, though we don't know the details. None of them seem to be connected in particular to unrest, and they were probably just routine promotions as older governors died or were promoted themselves. One eastern satrap under Darius III does deserve special attention, though. In 335 BCE, Ario Barzanes was named the first ever satrap of Parsa. This is a startling change in imperial policy. The Achaemenids' home province had never had a satrap before. Instead, the mayor of the palace at Persepolis filled some of the same roles, but the homeland was never treated as a province in the same way as all the conquered peoples. Parsa was above that. Installing Ariobarzanes as a true satrap meant that aspects of provincial administration would be introduced, like taxes, and that Ariobarzanes would have greater autonomy from Darius than the mayors of Persepolis typically had under his predecessors. Ariobarzanes was evidently a son or grandson of the rebellious Pharnacid satrap from the Great Revolt by the same name and his appointment to an unprecedented rank in Parsa may represent some of the processes Darius used to gain support for his shaky power base. Elevating Ariobarzanes would have the dual effect of reconciling both surviving branches of the Farnacid family and securing loyalty from a cadet branch of the Achaemenid house. Darius III could hardly purge the hundreds of distant royal cousins from the empire, but he could ensure that as many of them stayed loyal as possible. It's highly likely that many of the satraps he appointed were cousins that needed to be appeased. Likewise, if Darius had children old enough to marry off, he almost certainly would have done so to forge marriage alliances with other nobles but he did not. In an example of extremely confusing convention, Darius's wife Statera is sometimes called Statera I. But of course, she wasn't, as that had already been Artaxerxes II's wife's name, but so it goes. For clarity, I will call her Queen Statera the Elder rather than the First. Darius, or more accurately, Artashiata, and Statera were married sometime while he was still satrap in Armenia. Different sources make different claims on Statera's background. She may have been his sister, but that is not universally agreed upon. She may have been the daughter of a different noble, or the daughter of a tribal confederacy's leader that they were trying to form an alliance with. The first daughter of Darius and Statera was apparently born sometime in the late 350s or early 340s. She was also named Statera, 
or for clarity's sake, Statera II, or Statera the Younger. This Statera was probably in her early teens when her father became king, only barely of marrying age by 334. Darius and Statera the Elder had another girl named Drapetis, who is still just a child around 10 to 13 years old at this point. Finally, just before Artaxerxes IV's death, Statera the Elder gave birth to a son named Ochus. Of course, this Ochus was maybe four or five years old by 334, so not exactly a political power player. We can probably assume that, as king, Darius was hard at work finding secondary wives and concubines to shore up his political alliances but also probably already thinking of a way to avoid the old conflicts of primogeniture and porphyrogeniture rearing their ugly heads once again. Even if only by a few months, the little Prince Ochus had been born before his father was crowned. Any good Achaemenid king knew that this would cause problems. Lastly, I also want to discuss some legendary feats attributed to Darius III, or more accurately, Dara II, a king of later Persian and Zoroastrian tales who combines aspects of several historical Dariuses, but is most closely associated with events from Darius III's reign. Dara was credited with the construction of a city in southeastern Parsa historically called Darabgerd, or just Darab today. This is certainly possible, but unlikely, as there is no evidence to support its existence in Achaemenid times. The city's name does literally mean Darius Town, but it's more likely the product of a later dynasty of petty kings called the Darianids. After the first of their line, Darian, which is just a later Aramaic rendering of Dariavosh, just as Darius is in Latin. In a tale more directly connected to the events of the real Darius III's reign, the legendary Dara II is credited with the first written compilation of the Avesta. Supposedly, all the Magi's commentaries and scripture itself were recorded on sheets of leather in golden ink to record the sacred hymns and prayers forever. If these documents ever existed, it is highly unlikely that it included all of the same text as the modern Avesta though the authors of the tale probably did imagine it as something like that. Some Avestan compositions that existed back then are simply lost by now, and it is probable that different hymns fell in and out of favor over the centuries before the Sassanid era written text came to be. Either way, there is no historical, linguistic, or epigraphic evidence to support this claim. The act of being preserved in writing does alter how a language changes over time, and Avestan does not exhibit any evidence of this. It is unlikely that this version of the written Avesta ever existed. However, 
at least one version of the story suggests that we wouldn't actually expect to find any evidence of Darius's Avesta anyway, because it was almost immediately destroyed by a horde of bloodthirsty savages that came pouring across Asia from the West. Now our narrative has reached 334 BCE, and next time we will return to Macedon to see what exactly has been going on while we were away dealing with Egyptian pretenders, scheming advisors, and misguided rebels. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.